I'm Theo. And I'm Juliet. And this is Apologies Accepted. We offer an entertaining look at some of the big issues in history by examining public apologies of the famous and infamous. We're looking at politicians, serial killers, actors, and you. Send us a public apology you would like to make, and we'll read it on the air and give you a chance to redeem yourself or just get some guilt off your shoulders. We're here for you. Once a week, maybe more if you're really, really sorry. Everybody. This is Apologies Accepted, the, the podcast. podcast. Welcome, and I am not Theo. And I am not Juliet. And we're happy that you've joined us again this week. Um, lots of stuff going on, uh, So, but let's start with you, Theo. What's shaking, Bacon? Um, so, hey, guess who has not been paying any attention to the news? Me. I've officially stopped watching the evening news. I am not really even going through Google News. I dive in in the morning, just quick headline skim. That's it. Um, and it's a nice world. It it's is. It's so relaxing, isn't it? Oh, it's awesome. I highly recommend not paying attention to the news right now, which is sad because, like, we shot down four UFOs, I understand. and I thought you weren't paying attention to the news. Well, I'm not reading the news, and I'm not getting to avoid. personally invested in the news, right? There like you go. when, oh, Donald Trump said this thing. I don't care. Oh, he might yeah. run again. Five years ago, I nervous panic. I would have been yeah. up at night, waking up at four o'clock in the morning, all about the news and the politics. I am burned the fuck out. Um, yeah, I hear you. And so, it's nice not paying much attention to the news good for you That's yeah very healthy there well i don't feel super informed like i've already forgotten who the secretary of state is and um if i, I hear the, the last secretary of state i could identify as janet yellen so that was in the clinton era right oh, maybe <laughs> yeah um so uh so i'm sliding into apathy and i've got to yeah. say it's it's like a nice warm bath. I'm sign me up. Um, yeah, and so that's been it. Work, work, work. And then yesterday went out to uh, my favorite form of escape, retail therapy, and specifically Ooh. the Pottery Barn outlet. Um, and I spent a lot of money I didn't need to spend. What'd you buy? I bought a sort of a velvet, but it's like not velvet. It's cotton velvet. I don't ask me. I don't know enough about fabric or material um uh-huh. bedspread or duvet cover nice. right and uh some pillows and i feel like i've completely transformed the house just by putting a different blanket on the bed what wow, color is look it? at me dark gray oh nice i got so inspired by that that i went out and i watered the lawn with miracle grow and this tells you everything <laughs> you need to know about my life and how boring That's it hilarious. is. Yes, this is. I have a Pottery Barn um, velvet bedspread. I wonder if it's similar. Mine is red, though. Oh, I wanted to get the red one, um, but it felt very Christmassy, and so, and I don't. Weirdly, I don't have a lot of red ad in the house, so it was kind of like yeah, I don't really use cool for those reasons. Ah, well, okay, so <laughs> good, <laughs> but you good have you it. Not buying it. All right. Well, now I must go and buy it. I haven't told James that we have a new, um, very, very unneeded and pretty pricey velvet um, bedspread. Let's go duvet we'll cover. Figure it right? out. 
Well, one day he's going to walk back into this bedroom and be like, uh, when did this change? Oh, I don't know, months ago. That old thing, we've had that. <laughs> right. I got it on eBay. It was it was in the storage locker or whatever, yeah. I found it in the road. <laughs> uh, That's awesome. I yes. love Pottery Barn. I'm just such, I'm so bougie. Uh, same, and embarrassingly so. Same, <laughs> right? It's an awful bad me. Okay, what about you? What's shaking bacon? Uh, we went to Sacramento last weekend, so that happened. Um, we stayed in a, a pretty nice hotel um, and had dinner in the hotel restaurant, which was actually really good. So um, so that was something. Um, we went there to go, basically to get out of town. Um, we went there to go antique shopping and to go to the art museum, the Crocker Museum of Art. And so we saw some nice German expressionism art and some other stuff that was pretty interesting. I, we spent a couple hours in the museum. And then we went, we were just there, like we went out Friday and came back Sunday. So on Saturday, we went to the art, we got up, we got coffee, went to the art museum, um, went to lunch, went to the antique stores, and then went to dinner. And um, it was it was a nice trip. The antique stores, I would personally call more flea markets, but they call themselves antique stores. I've already. I want to go. I'm so jealous. I love a flea market. I love an antique store. Tell me yeah. everything. Um, the first one we went to was like an antique mall. So it was like this building that has all these little shops in it. And you just go from shop to shop looking at everything. And, it, you know, California is so different antique shopping than when I grew up. I used to go antique shopping with my mother all the time. Mm -hmm. And that was on the East Coast in Pennsylvania. And the the antiques that you find in California versus the East Coast are so different. Like it, it, the stuff on the East Coast tends to be older. And the stuff on the West Coast tends to be like, um, what's it called? Um, modern. What is that called? Vintage? The, no, versus the, antique? The, the 50s modern... Oh, oh, uh, mid-century modern. Thank you. It's all mid-century modern on the, on the West Coast. At least certainly the, all the antique stores we went to this time were like... Everything was like from the 50s and later. So it, was, it wasn't it was that old. When I think antique, I think like, you know, uh, colonial times or whatever. Yeah, but you, you think haunted. stuff here. Right. That's right. Totally. Um, so, so I didn't find any of that stuff in Sacramento, but maybe there's other stores that I just didn't get a chance to get to. Um, or maybe it's just not a West Coast thing. I don't know. Um, what's your experience with antique shopping and flea, mar flea markets in the West well, Coast? Well, thank you for asking because I live this stuff. And so awesome. completely agree. The East Coast, it's like, oh, that chair, it's from the 1700s. I'm asking exactly. $300 for it. And on the West Coast, yeah. it's like, um, that's an Etch-A-Sketch and I'm asking $300 for it. That's right. so true. Yeah. yeah. And so antique shopping on the East Coast is more like archaeological exploration. <laughs> and on the West Coast, it's like, oh, look what blew by us on the road. I'll just stop and pick yeah. it up. Let's sell it yeah. as an antique. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd like to make a, a East Coast trip to go antique shopping with Brent because I think he would enjoy that. So uh, maybe sometime in the summer we can go out to the East Coast and check out some maybe go to back to pennsylvania and see what's what's shaking bacon in pennsylvania my old hometown you never know I mean, yeah you never know i mean something could be happening something could, could be happening <laughs> i could go to philadelphia and visit my cousin in uh in uh, wilmington but 
Um, so other than that, um, I'm going, my birthday is coming up in early March. And so we're going to the Hotel Del Coronado, um, for, um, uh, just a long weekend, which I think should be fun. I've always wanted to go there for some reason. I, I am not really sure why. I don't know how I got it in my mind that this was a place that I really wanted to go, but I did. So, um, I'm getting a chance to go now and just, I'm just planning to hang out, um, on the beach, if it's not freezing cold, but it looks like it's going to be cold and rainy now when we're there, so that that'll be a bummer. But being being on the ocean is just in itself enough. It's nice, yeah. Yeah. So that's it, except for the news of the day is that this morning, uh, right when I was calling in to the podcast, um, I heard something clicking and some noise from the floor near my chair and i thought what is going on there is that a mouse because we have had mice the past couple of weeks and i leaned over and looked down and there was a mouse sticking out of a trap by its leg so and it was crying oh and i looked at it and it was dragging itself around (coughs) crying by its little leg and I didn't know what to do. I freaked out and I I had to put the podcast on hold while I uh, tried to decide what to do. And I went and I Googled, what do you do if a mouse is caught in a trap? And everything said, put it in a plastic bag and break its neck. Oh. Decapitate it. And I, I, oh my God, I, there's no way I'm going to do that. And I thought, well, I could take it outside and release it. But then I was like, well, I'll probably get bitten by this mouse and get rabies. And there's no, obviously I'm not going to break its neck. And so I let it go. And probably it's going to make a little home now in my French fries or something. But um. now it sees you as its mother, <laughs> yeah. and it will never leave. It'll follow me forever. Oh, it was terrible. Um, so I, I feel bad that I let it go, but I feel bad that I trapped it in the first place and didn't kill it. Um, but yesterday we spent—I swear to God—eight hours cleaning out the pantry. Um, and I'm not kidding about the eight hours. It took that long because there there was some mouse, some mice droppings in the pantry and uh-huh. stuff like that. It was just not clean. So we had to like take everything apart, wash it, sanitize it. You're nodding like you've had this experience. <laughs> it is the fucking worst. Um, mine wasn't mice. It was moths. And, oh, wow. Uh, what do they call them? The I, I know they're called moths. I don't know moths. But there's a name for <laughs> like moths? the me. I'm gonna say maybe I've heard that before. No, I, I think they're know. like kitchen moths or whatever. But like okay, they, or grocery store bag moths, whatever. Right? Okay, it's, sure. And so, um, yeah, I feel you. Everything has horrible. to be wiped down, thrown Absolutely. away. Blah blah yeah. blah. Yeah. I mean, we bought all these uh, storage containers, so we had to take everything out of the boxes that they were in and put them in storage containers and wipe every single piece of it down. And everything had to be sanitized and replaced and all that. So um, I've caught, I think I've caught four mice in the past two weeks, which is a lot of mice, I think, to catch. And I'm That's hoping a lot that of mice. Got, it's a lot of mice. And I'm hoping that we'll come to the end of the mice pretty soon and I will no longer have to worry about this problem. But for now, I'm on mice alert. Have you called a, an exterminating company? No, because I don't know what they're going to do. I mean, well, you don't want to know do? what they're going to do. You just go oh, shopping no. while they're in your home and then you come home and there's no more mice. I don't think that works that way. Just the tiny echoing screams of the little <laughs> mice reverberating in the hall. Uh, yeah. If I don't, if we don't get rid of them on our own, I'll, I'll we'll have to resort to that, I think. But um, Home oh, Depot, get the pellets and... I've got all that. I've got all the traps and the things and the the things that are going to 
what do you call repellent and attractant and uh, uh, everything lure to put in the traps and traps and things to feed them and little machine guns <laughs> exactly uh, man living in an old house has its drawbacks but i guess you know even in a newer house you can get mice oh yeah for sure yeah yeah so. i mean they're just i say oh they're everywhere i don't have any mice that i know of but yeah thank god uh, be grateful so speaking of mice. Hey, yeah. <laughs> All right, build a segue. Spe- so speaking of mice, what do you think of German Scheisse? <laughs> That's right. Speaking of mice and excrement, um, we have a story today um, that I think is a fantastic story. And Theo found the story in the, I don't know where you found the story. All credit is story? mine. Oh, Where'd you find it? In the news, <laughs> I said I wasn't going through <laughs> the, news. At the news. It's just the headlines. <laughs> I saw it. I opened it up. I read the first paragraph, and then I was like, this is "Oh perfect. my god!" I don't know that he apologized, but this, I, I'm going to send this to the boss and see what she thinks. <laughs> and then I was like, "I don't care if he didn't apologize. We can guess what he apologized. What his apology would have said." And uh, then we found the apology. So yay! And it's us. exactly what guessed. we would have guessed. It's exactly what we would have guessed. So I know y'all are wondering what the story is about. Well, I'll tell you what it's about. Um, a German ballet director issued a public apology on Tuesday of last week for smearing dog feces on the face of a critic, a newspaper critic, a ballet newspaper critic. Um, so Marco Gurke, his name should be pronounced Gurke, but it's probably Americanized like Gekka or something. I don't know. Oh, so I like I'm Gurke. Gurke. Marco Gurke was fired from his position as ballet chief at the Hanover State Opera this past Thursday following the weekend incident. The theater's management had asked him on Monday to apologize comprehensively and explain himself. Um, the Hanover State Opera said that Marco Gurke's actions last weekend in confronting Vibka Huster, a journalist with the Frankfurter Allgemeine newspaper, had been hugely damaging to its reputation. Marco Gurke's irresponsible actions have deeply unsettled the audience, irritated the public, violated all the principles of the house and massively damaged the reputation of the Hanover State Opera, the theater statement read. So what happened? Um, Gurka had approached Huster, the Hanover State Opera's dance critic, during the intermission of a premiere at the Opera House on Saturday and demanded to know what she was doing there. Gurka, who apparently felt provoked by a recent review that Huster wrote of a production she, he staged in the Netherlands, threatened to ban her from the ballet and accused her of being responsible for people canceling season tickets. He then, this is the fun part, he then pulled out a paper bag full of dog poop and smeared her face with the contents. I mean, that's horrible. That's not fun. That's horrible. That, that's unbelievable. But it makes for a great story. It's, so it's a great story. Also, what are you doing with a bag full of dog poo. Well, that's a good question. So apparently his dog is is his constant companion. And he said that, um, he quote, quote, my old dachshund had done his business in his bag, which sometimes happens at his age, and I had just packed the poo into a bag and had wanted to throw it away outside. So it was handy. In case he, anyone came along that he wanted to smear. Yeah, I mean, uh, I... <laughs> Not something that would cross my mind. Even if I was standing with a bag full of dog poo in my hand hand. and my worst, most hated person (laughs) walked by me, I might think, wouldn't it be funny if I put this on the floor and they stepped on it? But 
I don't know that I would think like, you know what? Maybe I might think I want to smear this in your face, um, but it would have to be like actually, in my hand. I would. I have actually thought on my walks when when somebody comes by and I feel like vaguely threatened by them or something, I, I don't feel safe. I have thought that I could always smear this person's face with dog poop if I needed to, if, if I were being threatened or, you know, if my life was in danger. But I would certainly never smear a non-threatening person with dog poop. It's just amazing. It's just the, 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 the sheer gall of this man. So why did he do it? Well, you could probably guess she had criticized his work. Uh, regarding his collaboration with the Netherlands Dance Theater in The Hague, Hooster had said it was like a badly tuned radio. She said, quote, one alternates between a state of feeling insane and being bored to death. And she compared the experience of watching the performance to viewing a warm winter beach from a glass window as if in a permanent state of retirement. So when when um, Goka approached her, he said something along the lines of, I'm a human being too. And he said that her response to that was, quote, aggressive, arrogant, and condescending. And then he said he smeared her face then with the dog's poop, saying it was not premeditated, but that he had acted in the heat of the moment. It was a little so premeditated. This, he had a bag of dog poo. I mean. I mean, yeah. Me, I, in the heat of the moment, you might slap someone. But I think there's a big difference between slapping someone and smearing their face with dog shit. I mean, this we'll just say this guy is something extra. He and really is. As we go through all of this, all these little points will will come up, right? Um, I, I I just yeah, <laughs> yeah dog it's, poo it's something in the else. face. It's something else. And you know, his dog. Speaking of his dog and poop, um, his dog inspired a 2019. A ballet with a Paris opera called Dog's Sleep. Can you imagine Adorable. going to a ballet called Dog's Sleep? Can you imagine anything more boring? Um, I mean, I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was riveting and very important historically, and you know, in the cultural world, it, it, it was revolutionary, probably. But I mean, Dog's Sleep. I I'm gonna say, uh, let's go. Here we go. Ready? Okay, <laughs> yeah. we're gonna say it. And here we go. I fucking hate ballet i'm uh-huh. not a fan of dance i cannot uh-huh. dance right um yeah, zero either. appreciation for it and i am somebody who who will get super excited about other forms of art um, yeah. i can't imagine any i even like the symphony i cannot imagine oh, i don't like the symphony anything more boring than going to the ballet and here's I can't why. Either. I, can't, I can't either. There's, I mean, there's nothing more boring. I do like the symphony. What am I saying? I don't like the symphony. It's, 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 um, uh, uh, what's it called? Chamber music that I hate. Oh, but that's okay. Just me. So anyway, that's yeah. neither here nor there. But, but let's talk about our taste, shall let's we? Talk about our taste <laughs> <and> art. <laughs> but I'm not going to do any ballet oh, called Dog oh, Sleep. Oh, this is work. Okay, so we've got dog poo and artistic taste. I need to get those two <laughs> together in the title some way. The taste of poo, arty poo. Um, you can do it. I have faith in you. <laughs> me too. This is a pun waiting to happen. Um, yeah, no. And the thing that I hate most about. Um, to say the ballet world, right? Yeah. Is not that I find it boring. How fucking pretentious everyone yeah. is. Right. How much we think of ourselves and how important we are. And the most important dance in the world. It's a fucking dance. It's not important. Right. 
it's it's important only to a very small group of people who are, who are dumb. very sort of insular, I, in my opinion. But I could be wrong. I don't know what I'm talking about. So. Well, okay. So th- this is you dodging future criticism, but I invite it. You come at me, you dancers. <laughs> I'll tell you how dumb I think you That's are to right. your face. Send us an email about uh, everyone, oh, yeah. all you dancers out there. Email us about how we're wrong. Dance your feelings um, to me. We welcome your feedback. Um, so, so when when Guka approached Hooster um, and said that she should be banned, she said, she said, no, that's not true. There are productions of yours that I've cherished a lot. It's not true. And then, after she was defending herself, then he pulled the bag from his pocket and rubs the dog poop in her face. And so she screamed. She freaked out. Uh, totally understandably. I mean, what would you do? Sure, she probably didn't even know it was face? dog poo. It's just poo. Uh, I think you could smell it. Well, yeah, it could have been human poo. That's yeah. true. <laughs> you walk around the <laughs> Listen, lady, I just came from the boys' room and I have something to share with you. I have something for you. Uh, Gurkha said initially that he regretted the incident, but he did not immediately offer an apology. He said, I think that the means I chose were certainly not super. Absolutely. I think from a societal viewpoint, making use of such a method will not receive approval or be respected, he said. He added, I am also a human who has never done anything like that. And in this respect, I am, of course, a bit shocked at myself. And the method I used was certainly not good. Yeah, he's never done anything like that. It's a... Yeah, the I mean, of innocence are a little too late. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, I I can tell you, I will never rub poop in someone's face in my life. I will. This will never happen, no matter how how much they criticize my dance. Oh <laughs> 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 uh, uh, oh God, yeah, and um. And we are right to be um, afraid because this guy definitely sounds like somebody who will come for us once he sees his name in our podcast. Send us an email, Gekka. We'll um, be listening to him. He later even appeared to try to justify the attack by uh, suggesting that in its scatological nature, it was like-for-like revenge for what he described as years of negative criticism. She threw shit at me for over 20 years. <laughs> And at some point, I asked myself the question whether I want that. How would other people react who work hard, having dirt thrown at them over such a long time frame? I don't think any hardworking person would put up with that for any length of time, he said. Hooster called the incident, which she believed to have been premeditated, an attack against the freedom of the press. Hooster said that in Gekka's apology, he immediately switched into strengthening the accusations that he had previously held against me. What sort of an apology is that? That is a justification. In addition, we're talking here about a criminal act of insult and bodily harm. So I, I got to say I'm on her side. Um, I am only on her side. And yeah. uh, all I can do is mock this poor guy it mercilessly. I, There's no ambivalence here. How full of yourself are you? Right? Oh my God. Calm down. It's yeah. just dance. Unbelievable. And I understand that like it's his whole career and all that bullshit. But but people call him a genius, or I guess people maybe not have called him a genius, but people have called his work good at least. And he had two premieres like in a row in one week. So obviously his career hasn't suffered from her criticism. So for him to it's just it was just a personal he took it as a personal attack and he took it all very personally. Uh, doesn't understand what criticism is about, and it, it doesn't understand. He doesn't understand anything that doesn't yeah. support his belief that he is the center of the fucking world. 
I love exactly. this line that he had about, um, oh, she's been after a paraphrase here, right? Yeah. But I'll do it in how I imagine his voice is. I did actually listen to him <laughs> speak for about five oh, minutes did? in a podcast. Yes. Oh, wow. Um, and holy Christ, as self-righteous and full of yourself as you can imagine, he is. Uh, um, uh. And so it's that his, his stance is... She has been making fun of me for over 20 years, and she is so mean to me all the time. And if I was a woman and she was a man, no one would stand for this, Ugh. right? But it's okay if I, as a man, take this dog poo and smear it in this woman's face because she exactly. deserves it. I mean, come on, dude. Right? Uh, and and I don't even understand his whole argument about if he was a woman and she was a man, then nobody would stand. What? I don't even know where he's going with that. It doesn't even make sense. Attacking him, or if the gender roles were reversed, then it would be a man mercilessly assaulting and attacking a woman's work. So what he's saying is that it's the same thing. She doesn't like me, but uh, no one cares because I'm a man. And that is unfair to me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to talk this way all day. I think you should. I will. I think it's great. I was just listening to an interview with Werner Herzog, by the way, and it kind of reminds me of, are you doing that like a, for a Werner Herzog impression, sort of? No, but, he is taking my voice. <laughs> he is using me. That's great. For his fame. Um, I'm gonna, Oh, my God. I love this. I'll do it all day. Okay. So you have some information for us about the ballet, I, I've been led uh, to understand. I, unfortunately, I do. Because <laughs> here's the thing. I I was like, all right, what there, is it, do I do the history of dogs, right? Oh there's so many no. fun things I could have done, or or the history of poo, like <laughs> how did different cultures react to poo? But I don't. That's just not. I don't love touching that subject. I yeah. I did that on purpose. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, the history of ballet. I I tried like the history of art criticism and. Oh my god, it was so fucking boring, right? And yeah, um, oh, I can't even remember some of the other stuff. I was looking for like famous battles between art critics and artists, right? Oh, cool. Um, but uh, I didn't find anything in my re. It's there. I, my search I terms. I kind of tried wrong. to look for that too. I was looking for women art critics getting in trouble or getting, you know, getting. Um, oh, that would have been cool. Feedback from, but I couldn't really find anything. I, when you look up female art criticism, you don't get, you get a lot of critic, criticism about female art critics. Right. And, and not, so there's yeah. plenty out there on, on criticism. Yeah. Um, but it, I, I just feel like what is art criticism? We all get it. We all, we all know, right? So the history of the ballet, where does this come from and why are we tortured wow. with it? <laughs> all right. When's the last time you went to the ballet? Um, have you ever been to the ballet? So, yes, I have been to, um, well, Martha Graham, I went to one of her productions, um, once a long time ago. Uh Um, and so I had a friend who was a dancer, Uh right. And he danced for Uh Martha Graham's, uh, uh, ensemble. And Uh he was performing in LA and was like, Hey, I'm going to be in town and let's have dinner and come to the show. And I was like, Oh, nice. I'll have dinner. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I don't, I don't want to see you dance. Not my thing. And it was, oh, yeah. come on. And fine, right? So the show happened on stage. Yeah. At the end of the show, this 
random guy walked up to me and was like, hi, I'm a reporter for whatever it was. It was a UCLA. So it was like a college campus thing. Right. Uh-huh. And, um, and, uh, you know, I'm getting audiences, uh, members reaction. So what did you think of the production? Right. And I was like, oh, I was so bored. I hated every minute of it. I'm so glad it's <laughs> over. It was like being on an acid trip, but not understanding that you're high. I hated oh every minute of it. Um, and I didn't I walked away. So I don't know if he <laughs> printed that or, or not. Right. But I figured it was fine. Cause my friend Michael, um, was not going to ever read that article. Hopefully so, not. No, of course yeah. not. Oh, funny. Uh, and then the nutcracker, um, like oh, yeah. pre COVID. So four years ago, um, which, you know, why did you go to the Nutcracker pre-COVID? Yeah, be, because my husband bought a ticket for me to go with him and oh. two of our friends. I and see. I went and didn't tell anybody that I hate dance, right? Yeah. Um, and it was fine, but I spent a lot of time looking at the ceiling. Yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. it's fine. But, um, okay, cool. So, uh, So I have endured the form in real life upon two occasions i've seen some movies black swan comes to mind um single white female i think also comes to mind and this just goes to show you that ballet is murderous and is for insane people um (laughs) okay cool so the history of ballet so um essentially we're going to go back to like the 1200s there wasn't really people dance. People have always danced. Right. But there wasn't like any formalized dance beyond um, what happened within court. Right. So people danced, but there wasn't an art form known as dance. Right. Right. Okay. So um, performers such as jugglers and acrobats at court were asked um, by audiences to teach people, how to dance, how to juggle. That was sort of part of the entertainment of going to these shows. Um, And this blends the world of performance and social dancing. This this sort of like desire from the audience to learn how to perform creates a new profession, the dance educator. Um, And the dance educator didn't teach just dance, but they taught grace and etiquette along with dance steps. Are, are the first known dance instructor is Domenico de Piatenza, an Italian, and um, ballet comes to us out of Italy. He wrote the first dance manual in Europe in 1416 entitled On the Art of Directing Dancing and Choruses. He was 16 years old. And you could tell he <laughs> thought a lot of himself because <laughs> his book is entitled On the Art of Directing. Right? Not just simply directing. Mm -hmm. Um, His work combined music and dance. And this was the common way that dance was understood in the 1400s in courtly Europe. So the dance moves and the the musical score um, essentially went hand in hand. Um, Opera and dance are both outgrowths of the same tradition. Dances were created for weddings and to honor important dignitaries, such as ambassadors from other European countries. The dances became a way of displaying wealth and power in a way that um, a display of military might 
um, also displays wealth and power, I but see. displays of um, culture are less threatening. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the last decades of his life, um, De Piatenza, it's so important to me to get the name pronunciation mm-hmm. correct in case he comes to haunt me later, um, it had a few of his dances published. He encourages dancers to understand music tempo and letting it guide the body and also maintaining a light and agile form of movement, being always ready to move to the next steps. Uh, Direct quote from his work. This necessitates that at each tempo, one appears to have seen Medusa's head, as the poet says, and be as stone at one instant and then at another instant take flight like a falcon driven by hunger. Poetic. That's nice. Um... He saw dance as a union of intellect and effort to create beauty. He thought it helped to be naturally beautiful, to be the best dancer. Um, One of his students was this guy named Antonio, and he became a dancing instructor for families in Milan. And he writes a book called The Book of the Art of Dance, um, which, of course, becomes wildly popular. And with with the production of these books, this concept of dance as an organized orchestral thing, if you will, starts to take place. So there's no real, at this stage in time, there's no real codified, this is what a ballet is. This is what a dance is. Um, All right, let's see here. So um, let's go to January 13th, 1490, and to the Festival Paradiso. I know. We're in the 1490s. Um, And so this this dance, and so just just to kind of better explain it, how this worked at court was the dances would be hours and hours and hours long. Three to five hours was, was nothing. And everybody was involved. And so... The idea of what is a dance wasn't about the steps, right? It was more Uh about how different groups of dancers were arranged within a room. So how is one group physically related to another group? And what you're trying to do with creating this dance is make pretty patterns on the floor of groups of people. So you've got 10 people over here and then 40 feet over this way, you've got another 10 people. And then in the center, you've got like five people in a single Mm -hmm. line. Right. And so it was um, more about one, everybody's participation and two about how everybody within the room used the space um, Mm -hmm. and not about is my arm up over my head or have I extended my left arm all the way out past my, I don't know, name a body part, right? Right. Um, okay, great. So, so that's dance. That, that's, that's sort of like what's happening in the courts. And somebody comes along on January 13th of 1490, and they have written and created a orchestrated dance, um, which would include poetry, spoken word, music, but then also the movement of groups of people around the room. And this person we know as Leonardo da Vinci. And his work, uh, this ballet that he composed, was based on the work of a poet, um, Bernardo Valencioni, sure, why not, from Uh Milan. 
Um, Mm -hmm. And it was part performance art and part architectural marvel and hello tongue and Mm -hmm. staged to celebrate the marriage of Isabella of Aragon. So Spanish princess, big deal. And the people who attended this performance, this performance was considered so earth shakingly important and beautiful and Mm -hmm. everything of all time combined into one amazing Mm -hmm. spectacle that the people who attended the function were revered as celebrities themselves because they were witnesses to this spectacle and and participants, right? So great. Um, The slow codification of ballet um, happened in Italy, so... These dances, as people are writing out um, their dance instruction manuals, and people are becoming um, more attuned to the the ways in which socially you can display your wealth through dance. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we we start to get a oh okay this is a dance. That's not a dance. The thing you did over okay. there isn't a dance because you didn't have a poet. Um, all right. So this uh, this forms in Italy, but the terms in ballet are all in French. And this is thanks to Catherine de Medici. Um, oh. She married Henry II of France. And in 1533, she brought Italian customs to the French court. So France, of course, had... A courtly culture, but it wasn't as over the top or ostentatious as what Catherine had grown up with, and that's what she missed. And so that's what she brought into the French mm-hmm. court. Um, the ballets were formal social events. The performances were part of um, the social event, usually occurring in the middle of the event. Um, ballets, as I mentioned, lasted for hours. So you would have a wedding, and midway through the day long event, there would be this three to five hour production where People would dance, stop to eat, listen to some music, listen to a poet. But you would understand that you would then be dancing again after the poet finishes or or whatever. Okay. So in 1581, Balthasar de Bougie, I'm not even going to try that. In 1581, this guy named Balthazar, who was a musician, traveled from Italy to France and staged the first ballet that we have the complete record for. His ballet entitled The Queen's Comic Ballet, um, and uh, was created for a marriage celebration. The performance includes singing and poetry and lasted five hours. The price for this single production was over 3 million gold francs. The production set a trend, massive productions produced by other courts um, in imitation of of, uh, Balthazar's Queen's Comic Ballet. Um, And... And here we begin to see other European courts. Battle? What do you call battle dancing? I don't know. Break dancing. Remember break dancing, right? Break dancing. The, the courts are now all competing with each other, right? Uh, for who can produce the most lavish spectacle. And again, wow. this is a way of reinforcing your culture's worth, its wealth, and power and sophistication. Um Okay, so Balthazar's production gave birth to what it was, uh, what became known as uh, the Ballet de Cour or the Court Ballet. Members of the court um, participated as performers. It was very much a by us, for us art form, 
and was incredibly exclusive. Uh, the dances became a way for the aristocracy to reinforce for themselves their own beliefs, which is to say, oh, look, everything we're doing is so orderly and beautiful, and therefore everything's great in the wider world. We are uh -huh. amazing. Um, because, of course, everything was not great in the wider world. No. There was plague. There was hunger. Um, even outside of war, uh, you know, wasn't a happy time outside of court for a lot of people. Um, the ballet decor um, built upon existing dance steps. So dance instructions were vague because it was just assumed that the reader was already familiar with the steps. The um, art form developed around the placement of groups, as we mentioned before, where one group would be in relation to another group within the same room. Um, so, and again, these dances included music, spoken word, and periods of social interaction. In 1588, someone wrote down an instruction manual for how to do the steps of ballet. Um, and so we finally, in 1588, have the first written, your foot goes here, your foot goes here, your arm goes there. Uh, again, not ballet in the way that we would understand it. Mm -hmm. um, so... So now we're pretty much centered in France. Um, Louis XIII, who ruled from 1610 to 1643, was a ballet star. He was a performer mm. and a designer, as well as a king. Um, wow. Ballets under Louis XIII became um, rather raucous. They were um, parties, essentially, and the atmosphere would become wild. The performance pieces became a bit crass because that's what people responded to. They were filled with sexual innuendo, and they became massively popular. In some cases, the people would mob the event to see the king perform, and the crowds would get so dense that the king himself could not pass through the crowd in order to go perform for the crowd. Um, so under Louis XIII, we have the appearance of the stage for dance, where the dancers finally are lifted above spectators. And then we have this divide because initially everybody in the room was a participant in the dance, right? Mm -hmm. um, now we have a separation. We have An some audience. people who are going to perform and some people who are the audience. Right. Um, this eventually leads to theaters being built for dance. Um, and once we have a stage, we can suddenly have set design and ballet now starts to become um, more of an art form. When everyone was on the same floor, there's really no way to suspend your disbelief. We're dancing around, and I know that my group of 10 people need to go to this corner, and that group of 10 people go over to that corner, but we've made a swan. Oh, mm -hmm. and we're the swan that takes flight in the Greek myth that we're celebrating in our, in our party. Um, so once you have an audience, who's just sitting around watching people, you suddenly allow for the suspension of disbelief. And um, with our audience again, we have the beginning of set design. And as dancers are only ever seen in character, the audience really is actually beginning to see a performance. Um, Louis XIV gets huge credit for the development of ballet during his long 50-year reign. The idea of perfecting dance steps um, became a part of dance, dance itself. Louis XIV loved dance, and he began performing at the age of 13. 
He was a natural talent, and he practiced um, for several hours a day. Um, so dance continues to evolve, and Louis XIV uh, founds the first formal dance institution, the Royal Dance Academy. He selected 13 dance masters to run the academy, and they were charged with creating the standards for dance, documenting existing ballets so that they could be re reproduced at later dates and hold to the same standards of perfection. And also these uh, masters would train new dance masters. Louis does all this because he wants to export French culture to the rest of the world. Um, his reign is really the start of France as being the cultural center of Europe. Under um, Louis, we get the five positions of the feet that are key to ballet today. Louis creates a notation system that becomes codified later. Um, and in this, his notation system, it contains notes on body position, arm extension, etc. So under Louis XIV, we begin to see ballet forming in a way that we would understand it. Um, this, this becomes known as La Belle Dance, and it's the precursor to what we would now recognize as ballet. Um, La Belle Dance grows out of the ballet de court. And we're going to uh, skip a little bit here. Uh, there's a big segment of this that I did not dive into, which is initially men were the star dancers. Mm -hmm. Women did not dance. Mm-hmm. Eventually, women danced. How and when and where and why, I did not go down that pathway. Um, it is long and winding. But mm -hmm. we do get, in the 1700s, uh, women appearing in ballet productions. And Marie Soleil was a French dancer who was uh, famous in France uh, for her... She's not quite a ballerina, but let's call her a ballerina, right? Um, and so... She's invited to come to England to dance uh, on the stage in London. And England's a lot more relaxed than France is about dance. And while she's in London, she begins to adapt her dance to the audience's reactions. So she's out there people-pleasing. And uh -huh. what she discovers is people really like it when she starts conveying emotion and... Again, she's not using words, just dance, but she makes herself sort of the star of the show. She's She develops the first uh, solo uh, dance section oh, okay. within a dance, right? It's a lot of the word dance. I kind of don't know what I'm talking about, but I do, <laughs> right? And I'm sure there's words for this that, uh, that are official, but I don't care about dance. But anyway, so... Um, while she was a famous dancer in France, she was famous for dancing in the French way, which was mm -hmm. quite restrictive. In England, she learns that she can be a lot more free and a lot more expressive and um, basically bring humanity into her dance moves. Mm -hmm. She returns to France in 1735, and she's trying to introduce the new English ballet that I discovered and invented this, everybody. Yeah. Look at me. And the king threatens yeah. to have her arrested. Um, oh, no. Yes. And so um, that's essentially the, I'll say, where I stopped because it 
just goes on and on and on and it becomes more detailed and more precise in terms of who does what and who invents what and, and when and where and why. And like, okay. And that's when it got boring. It was really interesting to me when it was like, oh, dance. It wasn't really ever a known like official form of dance. And it wasn't about our movement as much as it was having groups of people build out patterns on the floor. That's cool. Everybody ate a swan. Awesome. <laughs> Pillay. I don't care. Right. And so, um, cool. Yeah. I mean, we'll say, we'll say cool. And then we'll also say like, um, that's also kind of why these people are so full of themselves. It comes from a tradition of, of court and aristocracy and it's about displays of wealth. It's about displays of culture, awareness, um, I everything. Yeah. Yes. You got to have a lot of time on your hands to learn how to hold your form correctly. And that yeah. means you've got wealth. Um, you don't have to go out and work in the field every day. Earn a living. Yeah. Yeah. So. Interesting. The history of ballet is told by somebody who was struggled to stay awake while researching that <laughs> clearly well, struggled so, so yeah let's get back to the fun because this guy is just such a piece of work oh man yeah speaking of being a piece of work and being full of yourself as you mentioned um we do have his apology uh which we found online and i will read it to you now it's a, a little bit long but not too long uh, but it's it's important because it's it's important that we hear every word from this. Every now. every single word is so important every here. Every self-justifying word. <laughs> yeah. So he said, I would like to sincerely apologize to all involved, first and foremost to Ms. Hooster, for my absolutely unacceptable action. In retrospect, I clearly realized that this was a shameful act in the heat of the moment and an overreaction. Nevertheless, I would like to state that in this post-corona period, which is difficult for theater, it would be appropriate for all media, including the feature pages of renowned print media, to reconsider a certain form of destructive, hurtful reporting that damages the entire cultural enterprise. Behind every theater production are many people who give their heart and soul to it. Precisely because I am also a public figure, I cannot accept everything in silence. But I admit, my attack on Ms. Hooster, which can be explained by the nervous strain of two premieres in quick succession, February 9th in The Hague and February 11th in Hanover, has, as I fully acknowledge, without a doubt, far exceeded the limits of justifiable forms of non-silence. At the same time, however, I would like to point out the following. In an age that reacts so sensitively to everything we do and say, even cultural criticism, and this expressly also under the indisputable premise of freedom of opinion and freedom of the press, must ask itself where it violates the boundary to insult, to denigrate works, to mobbing, to attempting to create negative opinions, and to damaging business. This is what Ms. Hooster, at least towards me, and some, though not all, colleagues will be able to confirm this, has practiced again and again for years in a more or less subtle way with her often spiteful criticisms. I apologize for the fact that my collar finally burst, but I also ask for some understanding, at least for the reasons for which this has happened. And that's it. Listen, poopy face, you cannot be so... <laughs> I mean, Jesus Christ! 
Don't be so mean to me. Don't make me do this. Don't be mean to me. How Don't dare be you? Me. You need to love everything I do. It's and just it's your my profession. responsibility as a public figure to rub poop in your face when you're mean to me. <laughs> Listen, you don't understand what a hero move this is right now. On behalf of the rest of the people in theater production, I, I rub this <laughs> in your face. <laughs> I rub this poo in your face for freedom. <laughs> So let's look at the apology uh, using our usual criteria. So was there an expression of regret? Sort of. He says, in retrospect, I clearly realized that this was a shameful act. In retrospect, I realized this. It was a shameful act in the heat of the moment and an overreaction. It was a reaction to what you did, but maybe a little bit excessive. Uh, so yeah, maybe a um, little bit excessive. <laughs> maybe you did not deserve all of the poop on your face. Maybe only bit. half. <laughs> uh, was there an explanation of what went wrong? No, there were excuses. He said the reporting was hurtful and destructive. He said he was under nervous strain as a result of two premieres virtually at once, and in effect, Hooster drove him to it. Um, was there an acknowledgement of responsibility? No. Uh, as I said, he implies that she drove me to it. So it wasn't his fault. It was really her fault that this happened. Um, she should apologize to herself for getting feces on her face. <laughs> was there a declaration of repentance? Yes, but only in the most basic way. He said, I would like to sincerely apologize. But, I mean, that's kind of the minimum for an apology. So I wouldn't really consider him repentant. Uh, was there an offer of repair? No. And was there a request for forgiveness? No. So what do I give this apology out of 10? I think I give it, God, um, this is a tough one. I give it a zero. It It is a 10 for <laughs> self-indulgent, Absolutely. unaware, completely yep. self-oblivious. Um, yep. Yeah, yeah. It is. It's a 10. I think it is my favorite, favorite apology of all time. Wow. Um, yes, it is just, it's sheer gold for... It's a, it's a perfect example of a crappy apology. Oh, it just misses the point entirely, but that's fine. Absolutely. It's a, it is, a, as an apology, it is a zero again. Excellent. Two zeros back to back. Amazing. It's a, it's a the golden age of apologiz- apologizing. I, uh, yeah, I... Uh, I just love it. I love it. And we will part ways with that apology with this on that note. And I will ask you if you have a who's sorry now or an apology expected. Oh, I don't have anything. Who's sorry now or an apology expected? (laughs) Everyone is so mean to me. They all deserve what they get to poopy faces. I hate them so bad. (laughs) Mean. They're lucky that I didn't slap them with something even more damaging. Um, if I could go second, that would be yeah. a help. I do have an apology expected, and this is a serious a serious offense, so I do expect an apology for this. And uh, Although, all right, anyway, we'll just say what it is. A food safety sanitation company was fined $1.5 million by the U.S. Labor Department for employing more than 100 children, some as young as 13, in dangerous jobs, including cleaning razor-sharp razor saws with caustic chemicals. The children some of whom worked overnight shifts, were employed at 13 meat processing plants in eight states by Packer Sanitation Services, which contracts out cleaning services, the statement said. 
At least three children were injured while working for Packers Sanitation Services, according to the Labor Department. So I thought we were past the age when children were employed in dangerous occupations, but apparently we are not. And a a fine of $1.5 million is probably just pocket change to this company. So I think that's horrendous. I expect an apology from the Department of Labor and also an apology from the food sanitation, safe, food safety sanitation company. Uh, <laughs> what can you say? What can you say? I know. Yeah. Um, that's it. Mine's lame. Um, okay. There's, there's a great one. Somebody broke a Jeff Koons balloon dog in an art gallery. I saw that. And I'm so excited. I wish I had been there. $42,000 worth of uh, art destroyed in a hot moment. Um, Fuck Jeff Koons. But I can't find who broke it and if they've apologized. And so other than uh, other than reporting that this thing happened, and if, if only that piece of information had been available in the news story, I would know what yeah. to do. Um, yeah. So I, somebody wanted to buy the tail. Somebody offered to, to buy a piece of the broken sculpture. So I, I would be surprised if the museum didn't actually sell it to him. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. Or they could do that uh, Banksy thing where it's like, remember yeah. it, uh, his shredded. thing got shredded? Yeah, exactly. And yeah. so, like, maybe now the sculpture is more valuable. Um, could be. I could be. They could make it more valuable. They could just, you know, yeah, put it on display as the broken sculpture. You could actually have several different art fairs all running at the same time, right? Like in Milwaukee, (laughs) you could be like the ear of the dog. Yeah. And then in, I don't know, Mississippi, the tail of the dog. Um, There's so many people. I don't know if Jeff Koons is one of them. I can't say. But there's so many artists nowadays who don't even make their own art. Like Chihuly is one that we saw at Chihuly oh. at the Crocker Art Museum recently. And, you know, he has like farm, farms of people pushing out pieces of art that he claims to be responsible for. And and I'm told that this is legitimate. And in the art world, it's it's acknowledged that he is the artist. But I mean, I'm just like, No. It just doesn't make sense to me as a as a ignorant non artistic person. Well, it's that thing of because this was also pretty common in the Renaissance. You would have the artist who would have students, and like the art comes out of the school of uh-huh. this philosophical belief, right? I mean, that's okay if it's just, uh, you know the school of Jeff Koons or whatever, and little, little yeah. animals are our factory produced that's fine but to say that it is a jeff Koons and to have it in the museum if he did not himself produce it to me seems dishonest completely agree with you there but that's just kind of how people fake their way through art i guess i mean um oh my god the emails i'm gonna get people don't fake their way through art you horrible person you i work very hard on my dances and i make sure they are so beautiful yeah, I can't stop. Uh, so I'll leave it there and say apology okay. expected from the person who broke the Jeff Koons balloon dog. And thank All you right. for that. It was a woman. I remember that. A woman like touched it to see if it was real. It was actually a balloon. Oh. And it wasn't. <laughs> now, I read that somewhere. Yeah. On that front, I have touched a Monet painting. So I understand. You did? I did. I understand Shame the power of. Com- Compulsion. Compulsion. Yeah. And the, did you get in trouble? Uh huh. I did. <laughs> and yeah. m- may I say it was um, on a date. Uh huh. 
uh-huh. in Manhattan with like the uh-huh. most important romantic interest of my young life, and I was working right. so hard to make such a great impression, and I was and just, you touched a painting. I really did get swept up in the moment, though, right? Uh-huh. And so. Number one, where they are wrong is the rope was too close to the painting. And so I was able to lean over and it's not my uh-huh. fault. And right. th- then it was like, if I can touch the brush stroke of Monet, I might understand Monet better. Because, <laughs> you know, and um, yeah, and I did. And I and I even knew that I shouldn't. But yeah. I was like. Well, maybe only a hundred people will ever touch this painting and I'll be one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and what did your date say? I won't use his name. Um, we'll say that when the security guard came up to me and it took him all of two seconds to come up to me. Right. And, and to say, don't touch the art. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my my romantic interest became less interested in me romantically. <laughs> I think that was the moment. Oh dear. Uh, <laughs> well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. In my defense, I was twenty three. You were very young. Yes. I'm surprised they didn't throw you out of the museum. There were hundreds of people in this yeah. uh, museum, and I swear the. It wasn't even like on a wall wall. It was on like a cubicle wall, like they had partitioned off. Um, right. And and it was just a really thin velvet rope. And it may, right. shouldn't have even been there because like you could just walk up to the paintings. Now, I don't know that you yeah. would ever do that today, but I like I I didn't have to lean to touch the painting. It was just you right just there. It was, it was right inches there. away. Right. Yeah. yeah. I could see if, like, I stepped over the stanchion and crossed the floor and took and off the plastic. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, if I actually had to put some effort into touching the work, for sure right. that's bad, right? It invited <laughs> me. They were inviting you to touch the art. They were Please touch the art. Me. They might as well have had a sign. Right. <laughs> Immerse yourself in the Monet. Touch it. And I'll go down in history as one of the few people who've ever touched that paint. I don't remember what it was. But. Probably one person a day touches it or something. <laughs> Probably it's fallen to pieces <laughs> now. And it started with. But yeah, so. Um, All right. There, there we go. There we are. Well, thanks, everybody. This concludes another episode of Apologies Accepted. Um, we thank you for your patronage. And we hope that you have a lovely week. And... Um, Take care. Stay cool, cucumber. That's what I was looking for. Don't trip potato <laughs> chip. I'll steal it. See you next week. Bye, everyone. Bye. Listening to Apologies Accepted, the podcast. You can find links to the articles and the sources in the show notes. To submit an apology or find out more, visit us at apologiesaccepted.net, where you can also find our merchandise. We're on Twitter at Apologies Accepted and on Instagram at Apologies.accepted. You can support our important work at Patreon forward slash Apologies Accepted and fuck Facebook. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>